Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast Sociology Matters. I'm Marianne Paiva. I'm a researcher, a teacher, an advocate. For nearly 20 years, I've been teaching sociology at the college level, and I love teaching. I love seeing the light bulb click on in a student's eyes when they suddenly get a concept we discuss in class. I love it. But recently, we've had to change everything we know about face-to-face teaching and go to a completely online instructional model. With that in mind, I decided that I wanted to branch out and try new and exciting things when it came to teaching. So this podcast was born. Today, I want to talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. It's something that is close to home and something I've been researching for over two years now, and that is natural disasters. Well, more specifically, let's talk about wildfires. The campfire in Butte County, California, began on November 8, 2018. It started in a little tiny place called Pulga, which is a pretty remote area that runs along the Feather River along Highway 70, just uh, about 20 miles from Highway 99. Uh, Maybe not even that far. Um, But it is in this very rugged area where um, several factors came into play that morning. Um, Number one, we were having an incredibly warm November. We were also having an incredibly dry summer. Uh, The last measurable rain hadn't really happened since May of that year. And we were also coming out of a -a once-in-a-lifetime drought event. Uh, We had been in drought for um, several years at that point, although we had had a wet year in 2017. Uh, but um, we'd kind of fallen back into semi-drought conditions by the time November 2018 happened. On the morning of November 8th, 2018, um, it had been warm, it had been dry. We were coming out of an incredibly dry uh, drought, and we had an infestation of um, bark beetles that had come in and destroyed much of the timber and much of the uh, forested areas. And we had lost tens of millions of trees in the Sierra Nevada mountains to the drought. We know the history, right? We know all of the other things that are contributing to this. We've had poor management of, uh, of the forests for more than 100 years. We've had a practice of Uh, stopping every fire before it could get out of control, um, of extinguishing everything, even though uh, we know from our history that that really isn't the best way to manage um, forested land. Um, And so we had all these things coming together uh, on the morning of November 8th. We had been warned for several days in the area that there might be power shutoffs that our local uh, power company, Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E, as you may have heard, um, had warned people that they might be shutting off power to uh, avoid uh, a wildfire incident uh, because they were expecting high winds. We had been working up to this for several days where we knew we were in uh, an extraordinarily extreme fire danger time. Um, and, uh, and we were getting winds, we were having very hot weather. So on the morning of November 8th, uh, right around 630, just before 630 in the morning, the winds had come up and they call them the Jarbo Gap winds. And the Jarbo Gap winds um, are this phenomenon that happens where there's cold air up at the higher elevations at about 4,500 feet elevation. And that cold air is sucked down through the canyons 
and down to the valley below where you're at about 200 feet elevation. And so the cold wind from the from the mountains is sucked down, kind of like a whole house fan, um, down into the valley by the warmer winds. And it, it creates incredibly strong winds that go through there. And so on the morning of November 8th, uh, the winds, the local reports, the winds were gusting anywhere between 60 and 80 miles an hour by the time 630 rolled around. And at the same time, a spark was reported uh, in the Feather River Canyon right outside of Polga on Camp Road. And so when the spark happened, the winds picked up the spark and carried them through the canyon. A little farther down the canyon, a second fire uh, started a few minutes later, but the first fire engulfed the second fire and marched its way through within less than half an hour to the first areas of populated forest, which was uh, a place called Concow. I began my research almost immediately. In fact, that morning of the fire, I was driving to work when I saw the cloud of smoke and I realized, well, well number one, I, I wondered, uh, is that a thunderstorm? I didn't realize we were expecting rain. And then a few minutes later, I realized, no, that's smoke and it was bad. I still have a picture on my phone from 8.03 on the morning of November 8th that shows the black purple sky uh, and the clouds that were just mushrooming up uh, to the south of Chico. So the fire started uh, quickly for me. The research started quickly for me. Um, but at that point, we didn't really know what was happening. Um, a few minutes later, my mom called and said, hey, there's a there's a fire in Polga. And I thought, well, that's 40 miles away. We don't have anything to worry about. By nine o'clock, I was sitting in my office on the sixth floor of Butte Hall on the Chico State campus. My office has amazing views. It looks out over the Sierra Nevada mountains, and if I'm there early enough in the morning, I can watch the sunrise. I was dumbfounded by nine o'clock when I could see the flames of the fire march across the canyons and up on the ridges of the mountains outside of Concow and Cohasset and Paradise. And I wondered, as I watched thousands of people drive down the highway toward Chico, where are all these people going to go? There are two roads, basically, that I could see from my office coming out of Paradise and Cohasset. And that is Highway 32, which comes around the backside of Paradise and Megalia, and then the Skyway. And so I can see both of them. And as I watched the thousands of cars stream out of the mountainside, I kept asking myself, what's going to happen to all of these people? Where are they going to go tonight? Where are they going to eat? And so this research started the, the first minutes and hours of the fire. And I have a really unique perspective on this, both because I have family members who were stuck in the fire. And um, so I, I have that personal connection to it. Um, I was living it in the first few hours, wondering where my family members were and if they were safe. And then, um, and then it became a, an unintentional ethnography where I was living in the middle of this unfolding natural disaster that in the first hours was 
hard to comprehend. And in the first days, uh, even harder to wrap our brains around. And so, you know, it was, it was this, what, what are we doing here? I started asking questions incredibly early. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to know my background is in uh, basic needs. Um, I'm always worried about where people are going to eat and where they're going to sleep. Uh, it comes from um, a background in agriculture and uh, being in a small community. So these are the questions um, that I started asking, where are people going to eat and where are they going to sleep? I knew that my family member was going to be okay because I have lots of family here. We all have the financial means to have large enough houses that have extra beds. We all have uh, recreational vehicles or RVs that we can, um, that we can, you know, house someone in both either temporarily or long-term. So I knew my family member was going to be fine once they got off the mountain, um, that they would likely have, uh, you know, a steak dinner and um, a frosty beverage by the end of the day, and they would have a safe, warm place to sleep. But I knew that there were likely 40 to 50,000 people who were evacuating that fire that morning. And when they're coming to a town of only 90,000 people and a pretty rural area, um, I knew that we would have problems uh, being able to track and being able to provide basic needs for those people, both in the short term. And then after a while, I knew in the long term. As a researcher, I was placed in this incredible position where I was both watching this from afar. I've always had a really good ability to be able to separate myself from things that are happening close by uh, emotionally. I can stand back and say, you know, what, what are we actually seeing here? But um, I was also uh, in this position where I was living this natural disaster every single day, where I would go to the grocery store and people were talking about their fire story. I would be sitting around the dinner table and uh, first responders who were working in the fire zone would come as guests for dinner. And so I had, and I stayed, right? I was here in the community where most researchers come and go. In fact, I hosted quite a few researchers from out of the area, from different universities to come in and see the fire zone and talk to fire survivors. But I had a really unique position where I was so embedded in the community uh, both in the Chico community and in the Paradise community, and eventually in the Concow community, that I had nearly unlimited access. And I had this ongoing, everyday awareness of the issues that were happening with people. Uh, I, again, you know, we were all, we all had a fire story, and we were living those fire stories every single day. We were living them both by talking about what had happened on that day in November, but then after a while, we were living them by asking, how are people doing now? What is the housing market like now? Why are people still in the Walmart parking lot? Many people, this was the, this was the, probably the, the biggest thing that drove me to ask these questions is, you know, a week after the fire, people were still living in the Walmart parking lot in Chico. And I kept thinking to myself, 
how can there be people living in the Walmart parking lot? Every park in our community was filled with travel trailers, recreational vehicles, where people were living. There were tents in the middle of our soccer fields. If you drove around any neighborhood in Chico, you saw RVs parked on the side of roads, tucked into the sides of yards in houses. And right, all of these people were suddenly living in our community, and not all of them were living in a safe place. So I started asking this question that, you know, what was the difference between my own family member who was comfortable and had a place the first night? Um, in fact, we fought over where my family member would go between my sisters and I and my mom. We all said, this person's coming here. No, this person's coming here. We fought over where that person could stay that night. Meanwhile, there were other people who were living in tents weeks and months after the fire. And so I started asking, why is there such a difference? What is it about these people, these individuals who all went through this very traumatic event and life-altering event where 14,000 homes were destroyed in less than 24 hours and subsequently, which represented somewhere in the range of 30 to 40,000 people who lost their homes. So all of these people had gone through this natural disaster, and yet the outcome of getting their basic food and housing needs met was much different. And I asked that question, I started asking that question, right? What is the difference between these groups of people? So I was asking myself every single minute of the day, what's the difference between the people who had a safe place to stay on the first night and a warm meal and all of those people who still days, weeks, and months later were in temporary housing and were struggling to find enough food? I wanted to understand this problem better. I wanted to know why people were living in the Walmart parking lot. My background is in rural communities. I study rural communities. I love rural communities. I come from rural communities. Um, so I have um, a different understanding about rural communities and the connections that are made in rural communities. And I did some research for my dissertation that all came back to rural community structure and how that influences people. And so when I started asking these questions of how did people get their basic needs met in the first hours and days of the campfire, I started wondering about their different communities, where they had come from, what ties they had in those communities, and how those communities might impact their ability to recover from the fire. All of these questions led me back to sociological theory. I kept thinking, I need to understand this. I've got to understand this uh, because it was keeping me up at night. You know, what was the difference between these populations? And so I went back to my roots and started looking at Emile Durkheim and social cohesion and this theory about what holds societies together. Collins surmised that, you know, we can characterize an entire society or any group within it in terms of how much physical density of interaction there is within it, how much common focus of attention, and how much common emotion, emotional sentiment we have within that group. Durkheim wrote about social cohesion by dividing 
communities into different types of social cohesion. In mechanical solidarity societies, uh, more traditional societies, um, communities share common values and beliefs, and they come together, not because they have to be together, not because they rely on each other, but because they like to be together, they like the lifestyle that they have, and they have stronger bonds because they like each other. Um, compare that to organic societies that uh, come that come together and stay together due to an interdependence on each other, largely due to a specialization of skills by community members. This is more modern societies. If we think about this in this way, right? We all have a very incredibly narrow skill set. Um, I don't know how to build my own house, uh, so I have to work in a very specialized job so that way I can pay someone uh, to come in and build a house. But even that person, that contractor, doesn't have the full capabilities of building a house. That contractor will then go out and say, I'm going to hire a plumber, and I'm going to hire a drywaller, and I'm going to hire someone to paint, and I'm going to hire someone to do floors, right? And we're interdependent on all of these different people to get this one house built. In more traditional societies, people had a larger skill set and they were able to uh, build houses on their own and get more of their basic needs met on their own. People grew their own food, they would trade locally, and so they could get their basic needs met. So what does social cohesion have to do with how you recover from a natural disaster or how resilient you might be after that natural disaster? I've asked myself this question a thousand times over the past two years. I want to know what does community have to do with one individual's ability to recover? So over the course of about eight months, I spent, um, I feel like every waking moment uh, doing interviews. Um, In all, I had a team of four people who were doing interviews with me. And collectively, we interviewed over 120 campfire survivors. We asked some questions like, tell me about your campfire story. Tell me how you became aware of the fire. Tell me how you evacuated from the fire. Tell me where you slept the first night. Tell me how where you ate the first night. And then where had people been in the days and weeks following the fire? We really wanted to know what drivers were there in helping them recover from the fire. We wanted to know their resiliency factor. And so we found lots of different things. Um, There were some very obvious things that we knew immediately, right? People with better insurance companies uh, were able to recover much more quickly oftentimes than those who did not have good insurance. For example, one woman that I interviewed talked to me about how she had called her insurance company as soon as she heard about the fire. The fire was still miles away from her, but she wanted to know exactly what her insurance would cover. And so she called the insurance company and said, hey, you know, uh, am I covered for wildfires? And the insurance company said, absolutely. Why do you ask? She said, well, there's a wildfire close by. So a little while later, she packed up her bags, realized she needed to leave, and she started to evacuate out of paradise. And as she was driving down the mountain, uh, driving down Skyway, uh, she got a call from her insurance company. The insurance agent said to her, just so you know, we are wiring you $5,000 and that money should be in your bank by the end of the day. 
And she was blown away by this because she hadn't requested the coverage or anything. But the insurance agent was watching what was happening on the news and knew that she had called. And so he was able to wire, they were able to wire her money uh, before she was even off the mountain. That allowed her to do things like find a hotel, pay for food, um, and then uh, buy clothes and the necessities that she needed when she evacuated. Other people were largely uninsured, and there were a lot of people who were uninsured uh, for many different reasons. There are a lot of people who were renters and just didn't have rental insurance. There were a lot of people who paid off their properties, and fire insurance had become very expensive. So when you pay off your property, you no longer have to carry insurance on it. And that means that when the fire came, um, a lot of people didn't have insurance. So we knew that some people were doing better just because they had good insurance. They had responsive insurance agents, and they had you know adequate insurance on their properties. We also knew the people who just had more capital in the bank, had more money in the bank, were able to uh, recover, start the recovery process more quickly. Even if people had to drive to Sacramento or Davis to get a hotel for that night, people who had enough money in the bank to get a hotel were often able to find a hotel. When you're thinking about a natural disaster, you have to throw all normal indicators of how you get food and housing needs met out the window, right? Normally we look at things like um, how much money you have in the bank, how, you know, what resources that you have immediately. Um, all of those indicators that we normally think of to get your housing and food needs met, just you throw them out the window when a natural disaster comes. In the first hours after the fire, in fact, by about 11 o'clock on the morning of the fire, every hotel room in the Chico area, in the Oroville area, all of the surrounding communities were full. So these people who may have all the money in the bank didn't really have the opportunity to get a hotel room because there were no hotel rooms available. You couldn't all of a sudden uh, get an apartment that easy, or that quickly in the first hours because it just takes longer. Couple that with a 1% vacancy rate in the Chico area and you have it where it's nearly impossible to be able to find an apartment or a house to rent in those first hours or days. We just didn't have the housing capacity uh, to be able to accommodate all of the people who had evacuated. So you throw those factors out, right? There's not enough money in the world on the night of November 8th, 2018, could have gotten you a hotel room in Chico if you hadn't already had it reserved by about 11 o'clock that morning. I wanted to know, okay, if money doesn't matter anymore, if there's no hotel rooms available, then how did people get their basic needs met? Or how did they start the recovery process on the very first day? So the individual factors that we normally look at for food and housing insecurity were gone. And so I thought, okay, if it's not individual factors, like how much money you have, then maybe it's something else. Maybe it's more sociological, like community factors. So I called on my history of uh, looking at the structure of communities to see if that might explain how people got their food and housing needs met in the first hours and days of the campfire. <laughs> If typical indicators of food and housing insecurity can no longer be relied upon in the event of a disaster, what does explain how some people get housing and food and other people don't in the first hours and days of a disaster like the campfire? 
I started doing research on this in December of 2018. I started asking questions. I met with other researchers who were already on the ground doing research. And then in January of 2019, I began my own field research where I went out and started interviewing people who were survivors of the campfire. I didn't quite know where my research was going when I started those initial interviews. And in fact, the first few interviews I did were all those although there was a script for my questions, really didn't have a purpose. This was really grounded research where I went out and was just seeing what I could find and let the research lead me in the direction that it went. It became obvious fairly quickly though, when I was doing my interviews, that there were some commonalities among the people who found housing and food in the first hours and days of the campfire and those who did not. So what were those factors? Again, if not individual factors of how much money you had in the bank, then what were the societal factors, the community level factors that surround the individual that might explain who had housing and who didn't the first night of the campfire. In all, I interviewed over 60 people by myself in the first eight months after the campfire. And through these interviews, I found some uh, interesting commonalities, interesting trends that I started thinking about theoretically uh, somewhere, you know, two or three months into my interviews. I realized that there were significant differences in the social networks that uh, surrounded people and that explained, largely explained, why some people had housing and others did not. Some of the things that I found. Number one, I found that the pre-existing social network that an individual had often determined whether that person was able to find housing and food the first night after the fire. I found that people who had stronger social networks were people who also were more likely to be able to find housing that day. But there was a caveat here, and that was that people whose social network was solely based in the campfire zone, right, in the footprint of the fire, when were less likely to have housing and food needs met that night. I found one couple, they were older, they both had disabilities, and they were multi-generational out of Concow. They had been living in the area for about 30 years. Their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren lived in the Concow area. You would think, well, these people have a very thick social network, so they would have resources. But in fact, eight of their family homes were destroyed in the campfire. And so the first night of the campfire, that couple, who were both in their late 60s at the time, uh, spent that first night on the side of a mountain above Lake Orville on a dirt road. They were there until the next morning when local fire personnel came along and said, hey, the fire's moving your way, you need to evacuate. They drove down into Orville and then they were able to find food, although limited food, uh, in the Orville area. But even though they had really strong social ties, because their entire network had been wiped out in the fire, they were still very much at risk and did not have secure housing for months after the fire happened. second thing that I noticed was that people who had ties that transcended the communities and bridged the communities from Paradise, Concow, 
and out to other communities that weren't in the campfire zone were actually more likely to have food and housing on that first night compared to those who didn't. So people whose only social network was within the communities that were affected by the campfire were far less likely to have food and housing that first night compared to people who were able to bridge that network uh, and go to another network and tap into that. So we had this bridging and bonding phenomenon that was happening where if you had a very strong social bond within your community and that was the only community you were a part of, then you were less likely to have uh, food and housing needs met in those first few hours and days. Where if you bridged to another community, you were more likely to have your food and housing needs met in those first few days. And so that was a that was a first indicator of you know how did people get their food and housing needs met in the first uh, few hours and days. And then I noticed a, a kind of an interesting thing that happened as well in the community. And this comes from people who were able to bridge and bond their social networks. And there is a there is a church, the Adventist Church in Paradise, that has very strong social networks. And this came to me about halfway through my research. I kept hearing about these kind of bonds that were happening within the church, but I really hadn't talked to anyone who was who was you know in the middle of that. But the Adventist Church up in Paradise uh, has a school that is a very popular school there. They run the only hospital that was there in Paradise, and they have a very uh, thick network of social ties within the community. So they have a very strong social network and they have a, it's a strong, it's a, a, there's a salience of the enclave or of the network. Um, For some people in this enclave of the Adventist church, their entire lives revolve around this social network. I met one person whose wife worked for the local school. He worked in the hospital and they were incredibly strong participants in their church. All three of those were Adventist. And so when that person tried to evacuate, they knew exactly where they were going um, and he was able to get down the hill and he, from the hospital, he was able to get down the hill. He immediately went to an office that his employer had set up. By about four o'clock that afternoon, the Adventist church in Paradise had reached out to the Adventist and neighboring churches in Chico and had already set up housing partnerships for church members, had already sent up um, a food line, a food distribution, hot food distribution for members of the church. And so the fire started at 6.30 a.m. And by four o'clock, the Adventist church had fully responded and people were already being paired with other families to be able to stay with them that night. The Adventist church also helped people find things like recreational vehicles or travel trailers. And then they set up uh, a little area, a little travel trailer area, um, where they were able to provide housing for people temporarily in for several weeks and months after the fire. So this very strong network of the Adventist church explained why some people had food and shelter that night and why some people did not. But I found it wasn't only members of the Adventist church who were more likely to have food and housing that first night. Um, Everyone that I spoke to who had strong ties outside of the community 
had food and shelter that night. Uh, they, it was either with family or with friends who lived in neighboring communities or church memberships, companies provided housing for people who lived in the communities that were affected. And so if you were, this is a really, this is a really important concept here, this bridging concept. We often think that it's a, you know, we see these two different levels of benefit for social network. One is the bonding within your own community, right? Because if you have bonding within your own community, uh, then, you know, you come together, you're more likely to like each other, you have this affinity for each other, um, you share values and beliefs, and so you want the best for the people in your community. And that helps your own well-being. But you also have this bridging concept that happens. And so the people who were able to bridge their network and go to another network, whether they were part of the church, whether they were part of a employer who helped them or family members or friends who helped them, um, those people who were not only bonded with their local community, but also could bridge the, the neighboring communities were more likely to have food and housing that first night. That's it for this episode. I'm Marianne Paiva. Until next time, stay safe, take care of yourself, be well, and remember, sociology matters.